latest ACRI podcast. My name is James Lawrenson. I'm the Deputy Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at UTS. Today, my guest is Associate Professor Jane Golley, an economist and Deputy Director of the Australian Centre on China in the World. Uh, amongst many other roles, Jane is a former past president of the Chinese Economic Society of Australia, and I'm also happy to say that Jane's accepted our invitation to be on the ACRI Advisory Board, providing ACRI's management committee with strategic direction. Welcome, Jane. Thank you very much, James. I think it's sounding like a deputy off. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Jane is a colleague of mine, a fellow China economist, but I'm also, uh, I also don't mind admitting I'm a bit of a fan of Jane Golly. Um, for those of you who know Jane, she combines three skills into a pretty rare package. First, she's got academic credibility. Um, if you look at Jane's publication record, you'll see publications in journals such as China Economic Review, the China Journal, and Energy Economics. Um, secondly, though, she also has real-world smarts, and what I mean by that is that Jane keenly follows what's happening on the ground uh, in China, but also in the Australia-China relationship. Um, some of our listeners may have heard Jane speak at a recent National Press Club event, commenting on what Asia should do in the age of Trump. And finally, in perhaps the rarest skill for an academic, she's also articulate um, and capable of sticking to time on a conference presentation, which is a very, very rare skill indeed. <laughs> so for all those reasons, I'm delighted to have Jane with us today. Now, in this podcast, I'm going to be probing Jane for her thoughts in two basic areas. The first is China's Belt and Road Initiative, and the second is Australia-China relations. First, on the Belt and Road. Jane, last year, I was at the ANU for a conference called China Wealth and Power, trying to connect and or perhaps bridge the divide between economists and security analysts on China's rise. Now, at that conference, you presented a paper on the Belt and Road Initiative, and you described it as a geoeconomic tool of China. Can you explain for our listeners what that means and why you consider the Belt and Road to be a geoeconomic tool? Sure, and thanks for that very nice introduction, James. It's really great to be here uh, in Sydney with you. Uh, geoeconomics, it's one of my new favourite topics, and I will confess to it being new, and it came out of that conference because... You know, the, the, the basic idea of the conference was to force economists to, to write with people from outside of our discipline so that we would actually speak to each other. And so uh, it was my co-author, Michael Wesley, who introduced the term and had written a paper about geoeconomics for uh, and what it meant for Australia. The best definition that I've come across is proposed by Robert Attrell and Jennifer Power, who've written a fantastic book called War by Other Means about geoeconomics and statecraft in the US. Uh, and they describe geoeconomics as the use of economic tools to achieve geopolitical ends. But it can be, I, I want to make it even a little bit broader than that. It's the use of economic tools that have geopolitical consequences. And even if I don't want to sound too pedantic about the differences there, but they are quite different in then how, how you define what a geoeconomic strategy might be. Yeah, including around intention, is that right? So are you suggesting that even if the geopolitical outcomes weren't part of the intention, it could still be geoeconomic um, because it has that effect? That's exactly what I mean, and it's particularly so when you're talking about China because of its large size, its second largest economy in the world status that we're all very familiar with here. It's our largest trading partner. That's going to make whatever sorts of economic tools China starts to introduce very likely to have geopolitical impacts as well, whether they intended that to be the case or not. Got it. So then you come back to what the Belt and Road's all about, and, and I think that it is 
the most brilliant piece of diplomacy that I've come across from China, you know, since the opening up and economic reforms. And the reason is that as a purely economic strategy, it makes pretty good sense to me. It's not going to make good sense to all economists, but to anyone who read Hirschman and Myrtle in the 19... Not that I was alive then, but, but what they were writing about in the 1950s and 60s about creating counter-poles and about using developing transport and infrastructure in order to strengthen linkages both across industries within a city but then broad spreading out across regions as well, then an infrastructure-based set of tools, economic tools, to strengthen trade across the region makes pretty good sense to a lot of us. And so you could then take it to be an economic strategy alone. And the Chinese went to great lengths from the beginning of talking about the Belt and Road Initiative, then called One Belt, One Road. But as you told me, they you know there's been an official name change because that was sounding a bit threatening. Uh, but so the economics of it makes really good sense. And they were went to great lengths to say, this is not geopolitical. But how can it not be geopolitical when the vastness of it, and, you know, we saw this with the Beijing summit this year, and the headlines in the New York Times were China, something along the lines of China's $1 trillion plan to change the global trading order. Now, again, you can try and see that as just economics, but to me it's the epitome of at least one kind of geoeconomics, and I'd like to talk about other kinds that are, you know, far less um, friendly uh, and far less sort of positive in terms of their potential economic benefits, um, for example, that Trump's been using lately. Right. Well, <laughs> do you mind if we go straight to that? I mean, can you give me an example of a, of a <clears throat> Trump administration policy that is also geoeconomics but is far less positive? Oh, you ask such great questions. <laughs> <laughs> Trump, Trump likes to tweet geoeconomics, and I've been trying to collect some of them. He's not doing too many, but they're all currently about China and North Korea, and so the tweets are along the lines of China should be doing more uh, to improve on the North Korean situation and then we would be kinder to them in terms of the economic benefits we gave them. And we know that he's done that already in opening up various export markets and sort of striking deals that he links directly to wanting China to achieve, do something in North Korea. And, of course, Australia's jumped a little bit on the bandwagon there. I mean... Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby um, thought that that sounded like a pretty reasonable idea last week and, and I uh, responded in the press to, to suggest that I thought that was a fairly dangerous thing to say. But in any case, there's a, there's a kind of carrot, if you, if you like, that, that Trump's using to get China to do something with a geopolitical outcome. But, of course, he also loves the use of sticks and so, you know, the recent sanctions on the Chinese bank because China hadn't done enough... Uh, about what is clearly a very difficult and complex political issue, that is geoeconomics of a very different kind. You know, if you had right. to take your pick, I'd rather be talking up and, and explaining. You know, I guess the point is geoeconomics isn't good or bad. Yes. Uh, and yes. there's quite a diverse set of ways in which these two superpowers, and that's really who we're talking about. I mean, we can shift to Australia soon, but we're not big players in, in geoeconomic terms. I don't think we can start talking about how we can use economic leverage to affect outcomes in China because we're just not important enough for China. Um, but they can do it to us, and that's where things are going to start to get tricky. OK, OK. So we've talked about the BRI and we've also talked about some Trump administration policies. So where do other initiatives fit in this, in this scene? For example, 
um, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement. Are they are they examples of geoeconomics as well? I guess they do have some geopolitical impacts, so therefore in your definition they would be. I'm, I'm starting to think, and because you've asked such a, a good question there of how you might put these along some sort of spectrum from purely economic strategies to geoeconomic strategies, and then we could be talking about geopolitics, but we're economists, so we'll try and leave those out of it. You know, so CHAFTA, the free trade agreement, is what the Australian government likes talking about best when it comes to China. It's as close to a purely economic um, agreement that you can talk about. We economists are all used to singing the praises of the benefits of free trade, and we can all do that well, and you sign a deal with your biggest trading partner that will bring greater benefits, and we're all in sort of happy economics territory. And it should then, and it is and, and was at the time, celebrated as a way of strengthening the friendship between the two countries, but it's strengthening it in economic terms. Uh, so if, for me, I'd call that an economic strategy, but you could quibble and try and make it geoeconomics if you wanted to. The AIIB, I think, comes next, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. It makes good economic sense. We, we were involved in the debate at the time when, you know, the Australian gov government was umming and ahhing about joining and there were the hawks, the security lot versus the economists, the, the security lot saying don't join and the economists saying look it makes sense to come in and be on the inside of this institution which we ultimately did uh, and that's again about economics but it will bring China m more geopolitical strength I think you know it's inevitable that if you are at the head of a Chinese-led institution that is global in its reach and that has the sort of funds that they've got then how could that not buy China a little bit more influence and I guess that's another way of thinking about geoeconomics in fact I think the, the, what I'll call the chapter that I'm going to write for my next yearbook uh, on prosperity. I'm thinking of calling it How to Make Friends and Influence People. And again, that's what geoeconomics is about. So the AIIB is the next one along the spectrum, Belt and Road. Actually, what I want to say is it's too early to know with the Belt and Road. They could be forced to play their cards or choose to play their cards in a way that makes it as, as close to being a pure, purely economic strategy as they like or what we might find over the three-decade-long time period that this is likely to unfold, that there was a deeper geopolitical intent. So I think with the Belt and Road, I'd still say it remains to be seen where they lie on this spectrum that we're just creating right now. OK, so in that case, it's a perfect point for me to ask a follow-up question on what the Australian government's response should be. Um, as I read it, the Australian government response um, has been sort of on two levels. The first is uh, statements by the Trade Minister, Steve Chobo, saying that they welcome the Belt and Road Initiative because it provides better infrastructure um, to the region. That's good for Australia as well. Um, on the other hand, clearly, Australia hasn't um, formalised or endorsed, officially endorsed, the Belt and Road strategy. Um, it hasn't signed a memorandum of understanding as New Zealand did or as, as Singapore did with China. They're, they're, they're two countries that usually we would think of as being quite like-minded to Australia. Um, so what's your take? Given all that uncertainty that you were just talking about, um, what does an optimal Australian government response to the Belt and Road Initiative look like at this point in time? I might start by being critical and say the optimal response, whatever it is, is not the one that happened, I think. You know, with Premier Lee Ke-chung coming out to visit, they, the Chinese side were very keen to establish something more formal, and I think they were dismissed. Um, it was very it was downplayed in the Australian press, but basically there must have been some negotiations, diplomatic or otherwise, that led 
our government to say we wouldn't formally align. And the Chinese take that as a slap in the face. Now, I'm not saying that we should have rushed in and signed up without understanding quite what we were signing up for, but there seemed to be a need for better negotiations and a better understanding of what would have come with that. What you run the risk of when you know that the New Zealanders, as the example you gave, did formally align, is that even if you've got our trade minister talking up you know, the wonderful possibilities that might come out of Chinese infrastructure funding on the back of the Belt and Road, once we've said no to that, it's quite possible, I'd say likely, that those um, investment funds will find their way to other parts of the world. And you know, we're pretty slow to realise just how competitive the global market is for Chinese capital. We don't have enough of it. They're the ones sitting on it. Being on the inside of something, of, of, not, there's nothing like the Belt and Road Initiative, but being on the inside of that gives you a better chance to actually, I think probably, to have some say in the likelihood that the, it becomes or main, remains an economic strategy and not a geopolitical one if you're on the inside of it. So, yeah, I, I would have probably done things differently, but I also would have needed more information. Okay, let's move on to our second area of questioning now, um, and that's uh, in the area of the Australia-China relationship. Now, you're the Deputy Director of the Australian Centre on China in the World, um, so I think you're ideally placed to comment on some of these issues. At ACRI, we recently prepared a fact sheet that looks at what we think seems to be a tilt in Australia's relationship or or way of approaching the China relationship over the last six months. Um, For example, uh, Julie Bishop gave a speech in Singapore um, where she said that if stability and prosperity in the region are to continue, then we need the US to play a bigger role, clearly pointed at China, uh, as if to say that uh, a region in which China plays a prominent role or a dominant role will not be characterised by prosperity and, um, and stability. Um, we also had Malcolm Turnbull in Singapore, um, also seeming to indicate a bit tougher line on China. And, of course, there was the, uh, the other big speech by Julie Bishop mm-hmm. uh, exhorting China to become more democratic. Um, and by that, she means in, in, in the way Australia and the US is. Unless, and if it didn't do that, then China would probably be unlikely to realise its full economic potential. So it looks to be a bit of a tilt. Do you see a tilt, Jane, or is that something that we might have got wrong at Acre? Oh, I definitely see the tilt. I mean, it's always lurking in the background at the least. You know, we can go back to the AIIB example where, to put it simply, it is the hawks versus on China versus the economists in general. And the hawks tend to have a defence background and a security background and are more focused on the American alliance and what that means for security broadly and prosperity in the Asia-Pacific region, whereas the economists... You know, we've lived through the 35 years, 38 years of China's rapid economic growth and the benefits that that's brought to Australia. And so with China's economic slowdown, I think, you know, and and the, the fact that that's been so visible in Australia, there's been a tendency to focus more on, on the geopolitics of it, at least at that, at that national level. So how would you um, rate the Australian government's um, approach to dealing with China at the moment? Look, I guess there's going to be positives and negatives. So, so what would you see to be the, 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 the strengths of the Australian government's approach versus you know, which, which areas would you like to see some change on? I think where, where they do a good job is when they're talking purely economics. And actually we had this the China update at, at, at the ANU last Friday and they had an Australia-China session and a professor from Peking University said, you know, everything would be much 
easier if we could, and he suggested that we should separate the economics and the politics from it. And I asked a question and in response and said, how can we possibly do that? But that's what the Australian government, I think, is currently trying to do. Uh, so that Julie Bishop, when she gets stuck into China on their human rights record or their, demo, their lack of democracy, she's not quite thinking through... First of all, how the Chinese perceive those sorts of comments, and then secondly, how that might have negative economic impacts on us. Uh, and so I, the, the first thing I'd really like to see coming out of the government would be, and, and this is an impossible task because there is disunity, but it would be greater unity across the foreign affairs, defence and trade ministries in trying to understand the geoeconomic implications of China's rise and what that means for Australia. A challenging task, indeed. <laughs> okay, let me finish off with one last question, Jane. A aside from that tilt, the other big story in the Australia-China relationship over, I guess, the last six months have been these claims that the Chinese government is seeking to influence the political process in Australia um, and by doing that, undermining <coughs> Australian decision-making sovereignty. Um, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, is it a big problem? And what sensible steps might Australia take to managing some of these risks? Plainly, undermining Australian sovereignty is, is not a good thing. Yeah. Um, what, what might we do in response? Look, it's a really tricky uh, question and uh, quite a large number of questions packed in there. But I think I'm, I, I'll trust that a lot of the listeners uh, watch the Four Corners show and uh, that Chris Ullman put out, what was it, about a month ago now? Uh, and if you haven't watched it, you should. I was sitting on the edge of my chair. we just launched uh, the China Story Yearbook Control that night and I walked home and turned on the TV and among other people on the show, you might recall, Roger Uren, uh, Sherry Yan's husband, uh, was was essentially, I won't say accused, but it was insinuated that he had taken documents from the Office of National Assessments, ONA, and that he had provided them to his wife, Sherry Yen, who was insinuated to possibly, you know, to at least have Communist Party connections, if not to be spying for the party. Didn't do her any favours that she is currently uh, doing time in the US for making uh, donations to, to the United Nations Secretary General. Uh, and Dr Chow, one of the stars of the show, if you could call him a star in that sense, you know, was, was in, involved in that Sherry Yen scandal, but was also cleared of any wrongdoing. Meanwhile, Roger Urem was sitting at our... Uh, was at the book launch. So I thought that was interesting because he, if he had been guilty of everything that they talked about on the show, and again, I'll use just the word insinuated, he would be in jail for high treason. And he wasn't. He was hanging out at the Australian Centre on China in the world. <laughs> in any case, that's just a little bit of background. But this, you know, the, the headlines that came out real, at the next day in the press really struck me. And it was the, the one that will remain with me for a long time, was Turnbull to launch an investigation into espionage and foreign donations. And Dr Chow in particular, and I don't know either of uh, either Mr Huang or Dr Chow personally, but Dr Chow's been an Australian citizen for 20 years. Uh, he hasn't been found guilty of, of anything in particular. He does have Communist Party connections, I'm sure, because you can't be a Chinese billionaire and not have some sort of connections. Uh, but his response, as I read it, I think in The Australian, was, you know, suggesting that this was, I mean, he would take Fairfax and the ABC to court for, for defamation because they may have misrepresented him. Now, I'm not going to get into the legalities of it. We'll have to wait and see. But to report him as a 
potentially, you know, as a Chinese spy trying to influence our political parties when he's actually an Australian citizen who's made incredible donations, you know, when many, many other Australians haven't, we've really got to get our story right. Now, that doesn't mean that there's nothing that we don't have to be careful. I mean, I think the growing influence of uh, Chinese and of, you know, of the Chinese government apparatus in our Chinese language media is problematic. There are things going on in the university that make me uncomfortable. You know, the idea that, and I've had students come to me, Chinese students, saying that they've been pressured uh, following a class discussion that we've had on democracy or human rights, you know, in, in China, Wealth and Power, of course, that I teach. You know, these are things that suggest a level of control uh, and infiltration that the Chinese government is possibly using to change the way we think about China. Uh, are they entitled to do that? It's We live in a country of free speech, maybe, uh, but we certainly want to be granted free speech and, you know... A, I guess, some sort of reciprocity there as well. Mm-hmm. Are there any policies that do jump out in your mind that you would like to see the Australian government adopt in response to managing some of these um, you know, risks? I think you just, you've got to get people down, sitting down at the table and talking about it. So the university, university or education policy, I think, is a good example here where news like that that comes out of four corners, it can be damaging to our... Uh, Chinese student enrolments. Uh, it can be damaging to the potential for Chinese philanthropy to contribute and the money doesn't seem to be coming from other sources. So that's something that we need to think about. And to have a clear policy, you know, in the education sphere, one thing that runs pretty clearly for me is that you've got to have academic freedom. And so any time that any kind of deal was being struck or any kind of Chinese involvement impinged on our academic freedom, then there's a clear line that you say no to there. But there's a lot of other things that are fuzzier than that and you, you're going to have to go case by case and you've got to have a, a range of people who understand it from a range of different angles sitting down at the table and sorting it out rather than kind of just snapping to and delivering a response without thinking it through. Okay, on that note, we'll have to wrap it up. Jane, thank you very much for joining us today. And I'm sure our listeners got a very keen appreciation of why I said you were one of the rare academics that can comment across a range of issues in a very articulate way. So thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm in good company. Thanks, James. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the Acri podcast on iTunes. Our next episode will feature Xie Tao, Professor of Political Science at the School of English and International Studies at Beijing Foreign Studies University. He'll be speaking with ACRI's director, Professor Bob Carr, about Chinese foreign policy, US-China relations, and their potential impact on the Australia-China relationship. ACRI is hosting Professor Xie on August 16 to discuss current political trends in China. You can register for the event via our website, australiachinarelations.org. And don't forget to follow Acri on Twitter at Acri underscore UTS. Thanks for listening.